The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national breaking and headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress and other high-profile public figures. After the headlines, I interview the Honorable California Assembly member Adrian Nazarian, so stay tuned. Let's go over some news. The worldwide surge in coronavirus cases and deaths include even Thailand, which has weathered the pandemic far better than many nations, but now struggles to contain COVID-19. The only exceptions to the deteriorating situations are countries that have been advanced uh, in vaccination programs, most notably Israel and Britain. The U.S., which is a vaccination leader globally, is also seeing a small uptick in new cases. And the White House announced Friday that it would send federal assistance to Michigan to control the state's worst-in-the-nation transmission rate. The World Health Organization said infection rates are climbing in every global region, driven by new virus variants and too many countries coming out of lockdown too soon. Public health officials touted tremendous progress in the fight against COVID-19 and loosened travel guidance as Los Angeles County advanced into the orange tier of the state reopening plan. The changes come amid a 97% drop in the number of new coronavirus cases reported each day. The seven-day average of new cases is now slightly under 400 per day compared to 14,000 200 daily new cases on January 5th. Mirroring the CDC rules, travelers who are fully vaccinated are no longer required to be tested or quarantined upon returning to LA County. California Governor Gavin Newsom said Tuesday that as long as the Golden State meets two specific criteria, California will fully reopen its economy on June 15th. The state must keep COVID-19 vaccine supply sufficient for everyone 16 and older who wishes to be inoculated and keep hospitalizations stable and low. California plans on opening up vaccine eligibility to everyone 16 and older starting this Thursday, April 15th. I want to remind everybody that we are designing a system here in the state of California uh, that can provide upwards of 5.8 million vaccines to be administered on a weekly basis. Currently, we are receiving about 2.5 million, but we've designed a system that includes this site here that allows us to more than double that capacity. In anticipation, with expectation, uh, that we will be receiving more vaccines. Uh, you had noted that everybody now in the state of California, 50 years and up, is now eligible to receive their vaccine. We began that process, established that threshold on April 1st. We are encouraging folks that have not yet signed up to go to my turn, the statewide platform, to reach out to learn about most proximate site for where you are living uh, to get these doses administered. Today, in the state of California, we are proud to have passed two significant milestones. 20 million administered doses 
in the state of California and 4 million administered doses under the more important equity metric. Those two milestones, let's put it in perspective, are significant. We have administered more doses than all but five nations in the world. The state of California, that 20 million mark, represents over 7 million more doses than any other state in the country. That 4 million on the equity mark, to me though, as I noted, is more important and significant. This state set a commitment and a audacious goal of providing over 40% or upwards of 40% of all our first doses and providing them under an equity metric in order to deliver on the cause of equity. We still have a lot of work to do in that space. We're mindful of that. But that 4 million mark is as important as the 20 million mark. And today we have formally passed that. So what does that mean? It means a number of things. We're seeing death rates, mortality rates go down. We're seeing case rates stabilize. We have the lowest case rates in the United States of America. Over a seven-day period now, we have a 1.6% positivity rate statewide. We report today 1,367 cases. Still prevalent, still deadly, still a challenge that we need to tackle. And that's why we are mindful, as the mayor said, of the imperative and importance of not letting your guard down, not taking off your masks, maintaining your vigilance, and accessing, once your eligibility comes up, these vaccines. In anticipation and expectation that we do all of the above, and by the way, I'll repeat, continuing to wear face coverings, continuing to access vaccines and continuing to administer vaccines in an equitable framework. If we keep the pace, we are moving now beyond the blueprint. We are announcing today that on June 15th, we will be moving beyond the blueprint and we'll be getting rid of the colored tiers. We'll be moving past the dimmer switch will be getting rid of the blueprint as you know it today. That's on June 15th if we continue the good work. We anticipate enough vaccines are coming into the state of California. With two and a half million people just last week receiving the vaccine, we anticipate over 30 million people will have been vaccinated at least one dose by the end of the calendar month with the expectation of an abundance of doses coming in from the federal government through the end of this month and into May, we can confidently say by June 15th that we can start to open up as business as usual. Yes. Subject to ongoing mask wearing and ongoing vigilance. So this is a big day in terms of the pandemic and the journey that we've been on, as the mayor noted, over the course of the last year. And this is an important milestone today, that 20 million and 4 million equity mark. And this is a compliment to all of you, to the mayor, to all the work that's being done by local health officers all up and down the state of California. At the end of the day, the state vision is realized at the local level. 
And so again, I want to just congratulate and applaud all the local partners, the community-based organizations, all the work that's being done in a very culturally competent manner, in language, all across the state of California, and that real commitment, again, to delivering on the issue of equity. And so I want to thank the mayor. I want to thank Dr. Colfax. I also want to thank Dr. Galley, uh, who has led the charge. We've had a blueprint in place in this state for 31 weeks now. And by the way, 16 counties are moving today into less restrictive tiers in that blueprint, which is further progress. But no one has been more enthusiastic than moving beyond the blueprint than Dr. Galley, but soberly and thoughtfully, led by data, led by disease prevalence, looking day in, day out, hospitalizations and ICUs, tracking these mutations, and I'll close on that point. We're very mindful of the variants. We're very mindful of mutations. We have sequenced as much or more than any other state. The genomic sequencing that this state does is second to none. 851 UK variants we have sequenced in the state, 10 South African variants, 35 Brazilian variants, close to 9,400 West Coast variants. And we are also tracking a number of other variants, new one from India, which got a little bit of attention this week, this double mutant, this double variant, and also mindful of variants coming from the East Coast, including a New York variant. This is really a race, these vaccines against the variants, against the mutations. And that's why, again, I will end as I began. It is incumbent upon all of us not to announce mission accomplished, not to put down our guard, but to continue that vigilance that got us where we are today, the lowest case rates, positivity rates, that is, in America. We are seeing bright light at the end of the tunnel. And on June 15th, all things being equal, we continue that good work. We'll have moved beyond that blueprint, and we'll be opening up this economy at business as usual. President Biden on Friday ordered a 180-day study of adding seats to the Supreme Court, making good on a campaign year promise to establish a bipartisan commission to examine the potentially explosive subjects of expanding the court or setting term limits for justices. The president acted under pressure from activists pushing for more seats to alter the ideological balance of the court after President Trump appointed three justices, including one, to a seat that Republicans had blocked his predecessor, Barack Obama, from filling for almost a year. The result is a court with a strong conservative tilt, now 6-3, after the addition of Mr. Trump's choices, including Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who was uh, confirmed to replace Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg just days before last year's presidential election. In his executive order on Friday, the president created a 36-member commission charged with examining the history of the court, past changes to the process of nominating justices, and the potential consequences to altering the size of the nation's highest court. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. For today's Let's Get Blunt, I want to talk about the Turkish President Erdogan. And in this case, not just a Turkish president, but a dictator and also a mass murderer. A lot of people are aware of 
what he's been doing for years. And yet, the irony of how many other leaders from uh, different countries, uh, bodies, organizations, not only enable them, but sometimes even embolden them um, for perhaps their own self-interests. So a few things happened uh, in this last week that makes this uh, sort of ironic. In the last probably at least a decade, uh, President Erdogan has really caused so much havoc throughout the region. He is responsible for the slaughter of um, hundreds of thousands of Syrians. He wanted to get rid of the Kurdish population in northern Syria and to open up a, a, a corridor, if you will, so that the Kurdish people in Turkey and Syria wouldn't be connected. He has housed ISIS and he's used them for his mercenary army. He has sent some of his mercenary army to Libya, to Egypt, to Yemen. Just recently, he provoked Greece and Cyprus, Cyprus being a nation that Turkey invaded in the 60s and uh, continues to uh, occupy. And uh, just recently, Erdogan has been um, causing a lot of problems in the Eastern Mediterranean, provoking both Greece and uh, Cyprus. And of course, there was the uh, last year's 44-day, what some call it a war, but what it was was a genocidal attack and ethnic cleansing that Erdogan orchestrated and planned out very well to help Azerbaijan uh, slaughter and massacre over 4,000 4, Armenians living in their homeland of Artsakh, also known as Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, Erdogan supplied them with funds and military, uh, his mercenary army. There are interviews and videos of these, these men who were paid to go to Artsakh and kill Armenians. And yet, for the most part, the world turned a blind eye and allowed him to continue, you know, with exceptions of, you know, some leaders saying generic things, and, but nothing, nothing really substantial to really stop him. So then, after all this, and after Erdogan really violating international law, committing crimes against humanity, war crimes, and such, the fact that Turkey is a NATO nation and yet Turkey is orchestrating wars and uh, of course NATO is not, has blinked or anything like that. After all this, the European Union, which uh, keeps enabling him, the two top leaders of the European Union, Ursula von der Leyen, which is, um, she's one of EU's most powerful executives and the, you know, she's also the European Commission president, as well as the European Council chief, Charles Michel. On Tuesday of last week, they visited Ankara um, to meet with Erdogan to focus on EU-Turkey relations. So after all this, um, because Erdogan is able to dangle Caspian oil pipeline, which goes from the Caspian Sea in Azerbaijan through Turkey to Western Europe, uh, that's one thing he holds over, over their head, as well as the fact that Turkey has a population of 80 million, 
and is a big market for European goods. So European leaders turned a blind eye to the slaughter of 4,000 plus Armenians and went to Turkey to talk about EU's relations with Turkey on Tuesday. So the two presidents, the two leaders of Europe are led into this big room to discuss uh, relations, if you will, with Erdogan. And we saw TV images where only two chairs are set up uh, with the flags of all three nations that these, uh, these individuals represent. So the two chairs are for Erdogan and Charles Michel, the other gentleman, which, uh, which left Ms. Ursula von der Leyen standing in the middle of the room awkwardly, wondering where she's supposed to sit. Now, just the whole picture just reeks of sexism and misogyny, and just it's just disgusting. Uh, it's so disrespectful. So after her awkward sort of stand and trying to be polite and such, eventually she was asked to sit on a sofa much farther from the other two men. So this led the Italian Prime Minister, Mario Draghi, uh, on Thursday to accuse um, uh, Turkish President Erdogan of humiliating European Commission President and called him a dictator and said that we need to be frank about this and call him exactly what it is, which is what I've been saying, let's get blunt. So of course, you know, Ankara is all up in arms and calling back their ambassador from Italy and this and that. Which leads me to this, is I can't fathom that, that any European leader or any leader period doesn't see Erdogan for who he is. Even Arab leaders, a lot of them, have turned their back on him. And yet uh, he continues. Uh, of course, he was pals with Donald Trump. That was part of the reason why I think he felt confident to do what he did in Artsakh. He knew that the State Department, Trump, wouldn't stop him. Trump has two towers in Turkey, in Istanbul. So there was a lot of conflict of interest, as there were with Trump all over the place. Now, let me just go over a few things, aside from just the obvious and aside from the very recent things that uh, Erdogan has been doing. In 2019, the former prosecutor and uh, UN investigator Carla De Ponti said that Erdogan should be investigated and indicted for war crimes for his country's military offensive in Syria. She said, for Erdogan to be able to invade Syrian territory to destroy, destroy the Kurds is unbelievable. Del Ponte is a former Swiss attorney general who prosecuted war crimes in Rwanda as well as former Yugoslavia. Now, of course, meanwhile, Erdogan is threatening uh, to send millions of refugees to Europe, any chance that he gets to get Europeans to do, to do his bidding. Another investigative act that was done was a, a team of Columbia University researchers uh, from the US, Europe, and Turkey even, confirmed that the Turkish government has provided ISIS uh, military cooperation, weapons, uh, logistical support, financial assistance, uh, and medical services. This detailed investigation was headed by David L. Phillips, who is the director of uh, Program on Peacebuilding and Rights at Columbia University's Institute for the Study of Human Rights. He had served as senior advisor and foreign affairs expert 
for the U.S. Department of State. So, and the band plays on, and Erdogan just keeps going. Now, there's a little bit of reason for hope. According to reports, President Biden, who is not too fond of Erdogan, has snubbed him since coming to office, uh, not uh, made a, a phone call, the traditional call that uh, heads of states make. And uh, we have all indication that finally, a U.S. president will recognize the Armenian genocide on April 24th, which is the anniversary of the Armenian genocide. Of course, in 2019, both the House and the Senate passed resolutions recognizing the Armenian genocide perpetuated by the Ottoman Turks in 1915. So this is the 106th anniversary, and not since Reagan called the Armenian genocide what it is, <laughs> bluntly, which is a genocide, a U.S. president has called it that. So we have reason to believe or hope that that will happen on the 24th, and uh, that President Biden will keep his promise that he made as a, the candidate and nominee uh, to do so. But, of course, it doesn't end there because Erdogan continues to be a dictator and continues to be a threat to, I don't think, just the region, but to the world. So we'll see how long the Europeans and the U.S. and others will continue to placate to him for their own self-interest, but uh, for sure we can't stop talking about it and uh, be blunt about it. So there you have it. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. The Blunt Post with Vic. Assemblymember Audrey Nazarian was elected in November 2012 to represent California's 46th Assembly District, which includes the Hollywood Hills, Lake Balboa, North Hills, North Hollywood, Panorama City, Sherman Oaks, Studio City, Toluca Lake, Valley Glen, Universal City, Van Nuys, and Valley Village. Since his election, Assemblymember Nazarian has passionately advocated for increased mass transit in the San Fernando Valley, smarter management of vital water resources through infrastructure improvements, protecting and expanding the film industry, and much-needed earthquake preparedness. He chairs the Aging and Long-Term Care Committee and sits on arts, entertainment, sports, tourism, and internet media health rules and budget subcommittee number four on state administration and transportation. Good morning, Assemblymember Nazarian. Thank you for being on the show this morning. How are you today? I'm well. Thank you for having me. Thanks for taking the time for uh, being on the show and kind of giving us an update as to what's happening in California. Uh, in this sort of, dare I say, transitional period in our state history, nation history, you know, national history, I should say. So yeah, so my first question is kind of general is, where do you think we are as a state and as a nation in this sort of, I don't want to say post-COVID, but more like transitional period? Transitional amplified by, I may, I don't know how many times. Uh, we're, we're, we're in a seems like a multi-dimensional transitional time. It's uh, it's been a extremely strange time given that if you look at what's been happening the last 10 years, we've gone through uh, an extreme economic growth period uh, which 
was preceded by one of the worst economic downturns that we've experienced going back more than half a century ago, where there was tremendous job loss and there was tremendous uh, impact on many lower income and middle income families. Uh, a lot of the homelessness that we are seeing right now uh, was directly attributable to, uh, or at least segments of it, was directly attributable to uh, the economic impact from from 10 years ago, from 13, starting 13 years ago. And so, so you still have a lot of issues left over from that last economic downturn hadn't been worked out. We, we've had tremendous growth, but that growth has uh, not necessarily been one that's been spread for uh, throughout all socioeconomic classes. It's primarily been held to the upper quadrant. Uh, and so you've seen more struggles within certain communities and socioeconomic demographics. And you've seen a uh, this last economic downturn due to the pandemic just complicate things a lot more. So we're uh, as as we were making strides and making improvements and investing more money into social programs and social safety net programs that our state had either eviscerated ten years ago due to the last economic downturn, or that we're continuing to build because the federal government hasn't necessarily provided or mandated those social safety net programs of all states. So as California and as progressive as we are, we're trying to cover a lot of places that seemingly fall short from the federal government. But in the midst of all of this, then, you've had the uh, issue of uh, arising from the pandemic, the, the health care concerns, the, the, the disproportionate and ill-prepared process of securing vaccines, distributing them, the, the lack of testing, and all the challenges that were brought upon from the previous administration uh, impacting our health, but then how it impacted our jobs and the closure of businesses. And then when you have outdated uh, programs in agencies like the EDD where individuals weren't getting paid the way they should have been right away, especially at a time when there's such an uncertainty. I mean, this year has just been packed with so many different challenges. And the ongoing concern of housing, limited number of housing, and the, the homelessness crisis that we're still dealing with. Yeah, absolutely. That, that was a really good wrap-up of a reality for the last uh, year, year and a half. So then that brings us to recovery and this new year, this new chapter with the new administration, and as well as California, which is kind of a pioneer state in a lot of ways. How do you think the, do you think the, we, we are on a positive note that our recovery is um, where it should be in April? Well, in some ways, you hear some optimistic news. Right now, we've seen just in the last few weeks how quickly we're opening up and how, you know, with, with, the, with, with this new administration's effort and push and purchasing of vaccines and, and the distribution mechanism of vaccines, how quickly we're getting to a place that we can potentially be at herd immunity by June or maybe even earlier. 
Right. And and which is very critical, by the way, because the quicker we get our vaccines, the quicker we can stop from yet another surge uh, taking place because these surges then contribute to our the unfortunate uh, manipulation of new variants. And so the quicker we get to herd immunity, the quicker everyone is vaccinated, the less of an opportunity for the virus to be able to linger and variate. And so that's the best way that we can minimize uh, a continued impact and continued surges that could not only cause health problems, but as well as continue challenging our uh, economic progress. Indeed. So so to, to answer your question, yeah. you know, I, I'm very optimistic now, uh, but there is so much work ahead given how much we've been saddled with uh, over the course of the last year and what a hit we've taken. How do you describe or put context or an amount to a family's loss of a job or maybe two jobs, uh, closure of school, the mental health impacts, the impacts of isolation, you know, and, and, and of course, everyone lives in a different circumstance. So you can just imagine the impacts families have felt living in multifamily structures where they don't have a backyard. And so they're cooped up inside their one or two bedroom apartment dwelling. Right. Uh, and there might be three generations of families living in certain circumstances in some of these smaller apartment dwellings. And so, and if if one of the individuals, one of the parents did continue working and had a frontline uh, job and, or commitment and needed to go on a daily basis and potentially contracted the virus and brought it back home, you know, all of these were just, how do you measure the challenges that, that everyone has gone through and the loss people have gone through? It's, it's, we have so much work to be able to come back from right now. Uh, this is going to be an extremely robust year. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with California Assemblymember Adri Nazarian, who represents California's 46th district, which includes most of the San Fernando Valley. Well, you have a pretty, um, pretty uh, uh, ambitious agenda, all the the bills and propositions that we're working on. We might not be able to get through all of them, but I wanted to go over some of the important ones. Uh, one of them, starting with the student loans, of course, there's a lot of talk about uh, forgiving student loans and what it's, uh, really it's pulling down you know, millions of Americans. And so you have a plan with student loans. Uh, you and I briefly talked about it, but uh, I just want to hear your sort of your explanation of what that is because it's pretty unique. Sure, thank you. Uh, so, so AB Assembly Bill Seven Fifty Six is my uh, student loan bill that will help generate revenue to uh, help continue helping and establishing five twenty nine accounts for every child born in California. As as uh, we've talked about this before. Several years ago, um, when Governor Brown was in office, I, I approached the administration and I said, I have an idea of, of making sure that every child that's born in California gets a modicum of an investment 
a small account that is then placed in a 529 account, usually placed in a mutual fund that then grows over time. And by the time they're 18 years old, that money can be applied to their career enhancement, whether college, vocational career, technical trade, anything that helps enhance and move them forward in their career. So, so Governor Brown at that time wasn't necessarily too interested. We did a pilot project of $3 million. Several school districts applied for it and have started implementing that uh, to expand it. Because it's one thing to have several schools, school districts do it. Uh, it's another thing when you have a universal program coming from the state. Right. What usually ends up happening is when you have a grant application prog- program, uh, those schools that are either progressive enough or can afford to engage in a program like this will put their staff to work and get this done. What, so what ends up happening is those that have will continue having, and those that don't have may never get to programs like this. So it was important to me that we have a statewide program so that all counties, all jurisdictions, all children born in California can take advantage of this program. And it's- so when Governor Newsom took office, we put it, we worked together, we put $50 million into, into an account, and so $25 million is going to be utilized in order to start creating accounts for every child born in California. The one issue is there are about 450,000 children born annually in California. So if you do $25 per child, let's say 100, you do the math and you see how quickly that 25 million will get depleted. So the goal was, what can we do to make sure that this program is sustainable for at least the next 10, 15, 20 years? And what can we do so that we're not just putting general fund money into this program, but creating an avenue where we raise funds from businesses or or uh, through fees in order to be able to sustain this program for a long period of time. So I introduced this year AB 756, which would basically be placing a 1% fee on all future student loans uh, administered by many of these online student loan programs. And as you know, currently the student loan market is somewhere around $1.5 trillion in the country. Just in California, we're about 10% of that. We're about $150 billion of outstanding student loan debt. And what ends up happening is most of these companies are located or are uh, have their address in uh, outside of California. Almost every company I've researched is located outside of California. So our money as Californians is constantly paid out of the state. So this, the idea of this bill is if you are going to be providing a, a service, if you have a debt that you are servicing or, or originated in California, uh, you pay a one-time 1% origination fee on that loan, and that 1% money collected on that loan will go towards the fund that will continue financing the child born in Cal- the 529 accounts for every child in California. It sounds like a no, like a no-brainer. It's it's a long-term solution. It's not a band-aid. 
uh, and it goes beyond just students and student loan. It's it's a it's great business. Well, yeah, great business for the state to uh, retain its own money, you know, while helping the students and, and younger generations. So I appreciate what, that. Part of the concern and, and something that I've been working on is that uh, obviously you don't see students that are borrowing today having to pay even more because of that origination fee so that future students are financed. So we're working on making sure that, you know, how can we work this out so that students who are currently going to be borrowing don't pay even more in order to have a future child uh, have an account set up. So there is some kinks that we're trying to work out, but I think it's just critical for us to come up with some kind of an ongoing venue source so that a program like this can persist and we can we can make enough of an investment in every child so that it makes a significant dent right. in their, for their future. So what is the status of it? Where, where does it stand as of now? So it is supposed to be heard in the Assembly Higher Ed Committee, Higher Education Committee. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and because of it was actually scheduled to be heard last week, but because of uh, COVID restrictions and the number of bills that we can hear, it was delayed and pushed to April 22nd. So we're going to be hearing it on April 22nd now. Okay. Is there any call to action right now for the constituents or... Right now, it's not in the. It's in the hands of the officials. Well, so you know, the, obviously, our political process is not just a spectator process. It's a very right. hands-on process. You can contact your elected officials and and ask them to support this bill. Uh, I would very much appreciate uh, any any and all support, so long as it's obviously uh, very respectfully done. Uh, so that uh, my colleagues uh, know that this is something that matters to their constituency. You know, when, when bills get the attention of the constituents, uh, they, they become all the more uh, uh, important to the members that are uh, voting for their colleagues' bills. And, and when you say colleague, you mean other assembly members, but or, yes. or, or also yes, exactly. the state senators? Well, both, obviously. Right. right now, right now, my bill, since I'm in the state assembly, my bill is going to be voted on by my colleagues in the state assembly. Okay. Once it, it, it goes through the, uh, once it's voted out of my house, uh, hopefully, and goes on to the Senate side, then it's going to be considered uh, senators, state senators. And so at that point, it's important to engage the state senator, the the, the the respective state senators in order to make sure that they're supporting this bill. Right. So the next thing I want to ask you about is uh, HIV testing. You, you're working on something uh, regarding that. If you can tell us a little bit about that. Happy to. Happy to. So AB 835 is a continuation of work that I started several some years ago, going back to 2000, I think, 14 or 15 now. Um, what ended up happening was, and as, as when I was first elected in 2012, uh, I was hearing a lot of reports of how HIV and other STDs were on the uh, rapid incline. You know, there's been lack of information, generational departure from the scare of the 80s and 90s. Uh, drugs are making allowing people to live longer, healthier lives. 
And so I think, you know, the newer generation had kind of slipped from that that previous awareness of making sure that everyone is very careful in their in their levels of intimate relationships. And so and so when when I saw these numbers on the rise, I worked with uh, AIDS Healthcare Foundation to figure out what we can do to this. And so the bill that I introduced basically is going to allow for emergency rooms to, you know, sometimes you have a sense of what's going on, but you want to diagnose and make sure you have the right numbers so that then you can apply the right piece of legislation or policy. So what we did as a starter was write a bill that would allow emergency rooms to collect as much data as possible so that we know what we're dealing with. So we said, you know, everyone between the ages of, uh, I believe it was 14 to 35, that is admitted to the emergency room to be asked the question and voluntarily they can answer if they choose to, whether or not they would like to be HIV tested. The test has become significantly easier to administer and you get a quicker response. And so if you're going to be doing some blood work, blood testing because of the circumstances you're in an ER room, we can just slip this test in as well and and make sure that this one gets done as well. And that would kind of give us a sense of how many people, how many young adults are being admitted to the ER room and unbeknownst to them are infected by HIV or some form of STD. Right. So this bill, first bill actually was vetoed by Governor Brown. So I attempted a second time, and the second time we narrowly crafted it and created a pilot program. And what we found out from the second bill was that there was roughly 1.8% of the population that I outlined before Mm -hmm. that would end up in an ER room and unbeknownst to them test positive for an HIV infection. Wow, that's a one point, A little over 7%. Which is a remarkable number. That is a very scary number. Because if you look at uh, how many other people can be potentially infected when, when that person doesn't know that they are infected, that becomes a multiplier. Uh, luckily with current healthcare opportunities, uh, the multiplier factor for HIV isn't very high, but it is still potentially every one person is on average transmitting it to one other person as well. So it was very critical for us to be able to have these numbers and figure out how we can stem this issue before it grows. So now we're going to need to figure out how we work on messaging and more education so that we continue this testing and come up with ways that we ensure that people are able to get the appropriate attention needed so that it doesn't grow. Yeah, uh, the, the infection rate doesn't grow. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with California Assemblymember Adri Nazarian, who represents California's 46th district, which includes most of the San Fernando Valley. Education and knowledge are power, and uh, there's no reason, uh, you know, for... I understand the fear of people not wanting to to know, but once you know, you know we have great uh, HIV uh, medications now, and the state of California is 
probably at the forefront of HIV treatments for its uh, residents. So it makes it makes total sense. And one percent or one point something percent is a lot <laughs> from fourteen to thirty-five year olds going into the ER. Uh, it is. I mean, I, we we were. We were thinking that it's only going to be maybe in the fraction, maybe 0.4%, 0.5%, which is still going to be high. Uh, we, we we really did not expect it for, for it to even be above 1.0%, let alone 1.7, almost 1.8%. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's good news for a lot of people. would be happy to hear that. Next, I want to jump to you're working on something regarding the Armenian genocide, and of course the 106th anniversary of the genocide is uh, coming up and uh, the House and the Senate in 2019 adopted resolutions respectively recognizing the genocide. So now it's uh, up to President Biden. So I'm wondering what your, what your optimism, or, the, or, or maybe not, is as to if President Biden will properly recognize the genocide and call it exactly what it is. You know, the, the, the worst thing you can do is to have unrealistic expectations and feel extremely burned about something that is so personal and close to you. And the Armenian genocide is something that I've spoken to you about in your previous, in previous shows, and I've expressed to you how it's, it's been uh, one of the most important factors in me even getting involved in politics and eventually even running for office. You know, you, you, um, I needed an outlet as a young, uh, young individual and I joined different programs and organizations and I wanted to make sure that, that my voice got heard and that the voice of many elderly Armenians who had lived through that horrific terror was not silenced forever. Uh, and so, and as, as unfortunately the survivors have over the years passed on, because there are hardly any now survivors of the genocide because of, because of it, as you said, uh, to this year marks the 106th anniversary. Hardly anyone at this point that is alive. Right. So it's, it's extremely critical that we continue raising awareness. Uh, we continue to let the world know about the horror that happened, not sweep it under the rug. Because if we do not address the issue firmly, it's bound to repeat itself. And we've seen it happen after the Armenian genocide. Hitler, in a very famous quote, said, who now remembers the Armenians? When he was planning out strategically how he was going to try to wipe out every single Jew within Europe. And he carried out his, uh, uh, his executions based on that very premise. Because no one was talking about the Armenian genocide. And then after that, you look successively, every decade has had its issues. Pol Pot uh, took over, and under, under the Pol Pot regime, you saw a quarter of the Cambodians be wiped out. Right. Uh, you, we saw what happened to Rwanda in the 90s, right. between the Tutsi and the Hutus. And in all of these circumstances also show you something different. One happened, Armenians were eradicated on their own lands. The Jews were eradicated in uh, other lands that in their diasporan communities. The Cambodians was their own leader was doing it to themselves, uh, and, and, and in Chile. Rwanda you saw one tribe doing it to the other. And now to answer your question, 
I am going to do everything I can. I'm going to be united with my colleagues in making sure that Washington, D.C. hears us loud and hears us very clearly that it's critical for this issue to be recognized, to be addressed with deftly and appropriately, and for the appropriate respect to be given to the memory, but also to take steps of figuring out how we stop this from ever happening. We keep on saying about never again, but then we saw what happened towards the end of last year. Turkey and Azerbaijan attacked Armenia and Artsakh, the Republic of Artsakh, and caused thousands of casualties. And that happened in the dead of the night of the pandemic, when every country was dealing with its own economic turmoil. Here was Turkey continuing its savage ways with genocide under this administration, at least under this administration, and continuing to take advantage of a very vulnerable time in hurting its neighbors. But but Armenians haven't been the only ones. It's continued to do this campaign now under Erdogan, under this administration for the past several years. Yeah, what they did was definitely genocidal intent uh, and ethnic cleansing. That we're still sort of seeing the, the, the well, it hasn't ended. There's still it hasn't ended because now they're eradicating every historical item. You have mm-hmm. you have tremendous number of artifacts and culturally mm-hmm. significant historical monuments. I mean, if, mm-hmm. if as 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 you've spent time in Armenia, you've seen you can be out in a middle of nowhere mm-hmm. off the beaten path, and you'll see this this etched uh, cross stone yeah. uh, in the middle of nowhere. From like the you sixth know, century. Either on a tombstone <laughs> or in some random place, uh, yeah. at which, which could easily be four or five, maybe even a millennia years old. Yeah. And what they are trying to do now is completely eradicate and eviscerate any such of these stones, of these churches, of these various long-standing buildings and structures in order to demonstrate that this never this land never belonged right. to the original people the indigenous people yeah. living there it's the cultural genocide that uh, a lot of people are turning the blind eye including unesco which is really sad but um, we need to talk about it and bring attention to it uh, about what's happening i mean a church this church literally was demolished all the way to the ground in Artsakh, also known as Nagorno-Karabakh, and BBC's headline was The Case of the Missing Church. So I don't know how lazy this journalist was that didn't do their homework. To, to really call it what it is, is that Azerbaijanis took over, occupied the land, and demolished the church. <laughs> it's not a missing church. It's not a... It's not a mystery. In fact, the, mis- the word mystery was in the headline, uh, which is pretty sad. So, well, I'm, I'm glad. I'm, I know that you're doing everything leading up to April 24th. And so I am, I am carefully or cautiously, I should say, uh, optimistic. I have faith in, um, I have faith in uh, President Biden, but we'll see. Uh, there are always surprises, sometimes from the State Department. But yeah, I... Um, you and I could talk for hours because you're working on so many different things. Uh, I'm sorry that we're not able to get to everything, but before we do go, 
I want to see if there's anything that you really want to add. It could be a call to action or anything I didn't ask you. I'm always happy to talk to you more, Vic. Uh, I, you know, as, as you can tell, when I when I get into uh, a specific issue, I, I try to offer as much detail as I can so that I'm giving a good glimpse of what exactly is is it is that we're working on. Yeah. Um, you know, the only thing I guess I would want to leave you with is uh, maybe the soda tax bill that I have, AB 1163. Right. Uh, back in 2018, uh, the soda beverage industry, when it noticed that a lot of local jurisdictions, local cities and counties are passing measures that are placing taxes on their sugary drink products, came to the state and said during the last days of our of our session and said you know i have a ballot measure i'm sorry not of the session but of of the uh, budget period and said we have a ballot measure that is ready to go we have enough signatures and we have a poll that tells you tells us that this is going to pass if we put it on the november ballot 2018 and basically that's not going to allow you to pass any new taxes on any products on any retail products. And so we, uh, it was kind of putting a gun to our head, to the legislature's head, and so we forcefully uh, negotiated and passed a bill, a budget bill, that would not allow local jurisdictions to vote on, to place uh, um, taxes on sugary drinks until 2030. Now, as part of that negotiation, they were supposed to continue negotiating with the legislature and all other partners and participants to make sure how we move forward and place uh, uh, taxes on sugary drinks moving forward. For the last three years, there hasn't been any movement from them to try to make anything to come to any terms and work on this issue. So we, uh, so I introduced a bill that would uh, j- basically just undo that to rescind that trailer bill, budget trailer bill that we passed in 2018, mm-hmm. so that cities and local jurisdictions can once again place a tax measure for the public to vote on. So now we're going through the process of trying to get a hearing for this bill. Unfortunately, I've been told that it might get it's not going to get a hearing this year by the Assembly Revenue Tax Committee. And so now I want to make sure that we have conversations on why it's not going to get a hearing. Right. It's critical that we you know, when we advance a certain issue, when the when my constituents have voted me into office, they expect me to work on their behalf and make sure that we're providing the appropriate reaction to multi-billion dollar corporations that are utilizing the public arena for their benefit. And so if I'm going to apply an appropriate reaction, then it's very critical that our institution recognizes that and takes the appropriate steps to have a hearing. Yeah. So now we're in that process of making sure that this bill gets the appropriate hearing that it deserves. Makes sense. I this reverse something that's uh that's not working it wasn't a good thing to begin with so well hopefully you'll come back and we can talk more about that as uh, as the year progresses but um i want to thank you for uh taking the time to be on the show and 
kind of updating us a lot about what's happening in the state. You know, a lot of, I think a lot of people are interested to know what happens in Sacramento, but uh, information is not that available. So gave us just a few things that you talked about. Really appreciate all the specifics and everything. So thank you for that, Assemblymember Nazarian. My pleasure. Thank you for always allowing me the opportunity, Vic. Happy to join you anytime. All right. Thank you. Thank you. That was Assemblymember Adri Nazarian, whose district, the California 46th District, covers most of the San Fernando Valley, and he is one of the hardest working elected officials that I know. Thank you, Assemblymember, for being on the show today. Today, I have three tweets to read for you. They're all about infrastructure. Uh, The first one is from Congressman Adam Schiff, and he wrote, Infrastructure is roads and bridges, yes, but it's also ensuring that those roads connect our families and communities. Safe, affordable homes, expanded broadband, clean drinking water, green energy. Infrastructure is about building a modern economy that lifts everyone up. The second tweet is from President Biden, who wrote, High-speed internet is essential infrastructure in the 21st century. And the last one is from Secretary Pete Buttigieg. He wrote, Electrified school buses lead to a cleaner planet, healthier children, and new good-paying jobs. Not bad. Before we go, I want to thank my extremely talented producer, Ricky Herrera. And, uh, of course, thank you for joining me for another episode of The Blunt Post with Vic. Please tune in next Monday at 7 a.m. for another episode. For more information, you can visit thebluntpostwithvic.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jaramie. Uh, both Instagram and Twitter, my handle is at Vic Jaramie. That's V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. The Blunt Post with Vic.